Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange. Today, we're going to tell a story of a very successful nonprofit, and it happens to be in the city where I live, Lynchburg, Virginia. So, Russell, how's it out in Denver today? Nice and toasty, beautiful blue skies. Uh, It's been clouding over very quickly in the afternoons. We're approaching three figures out here, and it's good because my tan was starting to go to pop. (laughs) Well, we're in the mountains of uh, western central Virginia, and it's a lovely day, kind of a overcast and threatening to rain. But we got the old mountains here, you know, the ones that have been rained on and smoothed off. You got those young mountains. We are, um, we're, we've been on an adventure interviewing some really interesting people. And I just met Sarah Quarantato. Uh, is that, does that say it right? Yeah. Yep. Just met Sarah last week at my Rotary meeting where she was presenting. And I was really impressed with the story about this nonprofit she's the executive director for. So I asked her to come on and tell the story from the leader standpoint. Where was the organization? Where is it now? And Sarah, tell us a little bit about yourself and what was your passion for wanting to do this job? Yeah, so my name is Sarah Quarantoto. I'm the executive director of Merriam's House. And I've been a social worker um, here in Central Virginia for about 15 years. Um, and after finishing my master's in social work, came to work at Merriam's House as the clinical director, and so really had the opportunity to be on the front lines um, working with homeless individuals. And then two years afterwards was offered the executive director job, which I was really honored to accept. So tell us about why you accepted that. Yeah, I think when you're working in an organization with such an incredible impact, um, the leadership really matters. And so when there was a change in leadership and an opportunity to become that leader, um, I thought it was a really great opportunity to continue the good work of Marion's House, but also to grow and expand that work. And so, um, so I was really happy to be able to have that opportunity. We are, our audience for this podcast and this video um, is typically people like you, people sitting in the seat of leading an organization. It might be a ministry, it might be a community-based charity, it might be a membership-based charity, a cause-based charity. There are all kinds of different operations, but it's still the anchor to it is leaders make things happen. And so I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about you have a background in social work and you're doing leadership. Those are different skill sets. But before we do that question, talk about impact. You mentioned the impact on the homeless. Where was this organization when you started and where is it now? Uh, you gave some statistics last week in your presentation that were really, really important. Yeah, so Miriam's House, when I um, first came here, we operated a transitional housing program. And so for um, 20 years, we had a, a program on site that provided housing for 11 um, households at a time. And the great thing about homeless response nationally is that it's really the concept of um, programs responding to homelessness have expanded beyond facilities, beyond four walls of a facility, and really into the community. And so by looking at different models of intervention, we've been able to grow really astronomically. And so back in 2008, um, pre-recession, we served 33 individuals. Um, and this year, we're slated to serve over 300, and so that's a, a 900% increase. And so I think that really um, meant that we had to think outside the box and think about new ways and accept best practices that were going on in other communities, even though they hadn't occurred here in Lynchburg. You spoke of there's different levels of service, and what do those look like, and what's the impact? Um, you also spoke about how people don't return to homeless, homeless. So talk about the impact on the different levels, will you? Yeah, I think, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s, um, 
The homeless response provided through Miriam's House and many organizations was a one size fits all approach. And so, you know, every person or every household that became homeless was really given the same level of support and same level of resources. And what we've realized is that that's really unnecessary, that everyone's story is a little bit different, their circumstances are a little bit different. And so instead of sort of doing a one size fits all approach, we really triage our resources and we have really intensive services that do occur on site here to really um, sort of minimal or soft touch resources where someone just needs assistance with um, connecting with a landlord that has reasonable rents and then kind of maybe being that liaison between that homeless household and that landlord to get them back into housing. And so it really is sort of a gamut of homeless response that we can do. Everything from, you know, providing long-term housing with long-term case management to a very sort of short-term, short um, intervention. And the impact of the work, you, you said they don't, many of them are, I get some statistics there about like 96% and 100%. I was really paying attention, Ross, I hope you're impressed with her presentation. <laughs> <laughs> people that are placed and people that don't return to, to homeless situations. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, so last year, 96% of the households we served um, moved out of homelessness and into safe and affordable housing in the community. So that's great. That's sort of our ultimate measure of success. We want to end people's um, homeless episode. And the way that you do that is to get them back into housing. But we're also really concerned about, yeah, long-term success. We don't want folks to return to homelessness a year or two years after um, moving them into housing. And so we also track that data. And last year, we um, had 100% success in no household recidivating over the span of two years prior. And so that was really exciting because it means that what we're doing is successful in the short term in ending someone's homelessness, but also really successful in the long term in that they're not returning to homelessness. So that's um, really, really exciting. There's a... Um... <clears throat> There's, there's a process piece, finding a house, getting into it. There's also an emotional piece um, that helps people have an attitude of, uh, of self-sufficiency. Um, how do you work with people in, in that realm, helping them learn what they need to learn to be able to stay where they are? Yeah, so we our approach really is about empowerment. And so rather than having... Um, you know, punitive services where we're having our case managers tell people what, what it is that they need to do. Um, we really meet with them to identify what it is that they want to accomplish or how um, perhaps um, their homeless episode was impacted by something previous that we can sort of mitigate that by, um, by an intervention. So for example, you know, if, if um, someone was homeless because they had untreated depression and they were unable to go to work because of that depression, which then led to them losing their apartment and having to go to a homeless shelter. We can work with that individual to identify that, get into treatment, uh, perhaps, you know, see a therapist or get on medication so that that homeless episode can be prevented in the future. And so really working with each household to identify what is it that you need um, to be stably housed and not return to homelessness. And then we have really flexible resources. So we have a once a month aftercare support group that meets where um, households um, can come back and receive peer support about anything from, you know, tenant rights and responsibilities to, um, you know, just maybe a, a resource in the community back to school supplies or something like that. So that's a great resource just to have people stay connected. We also offer ongoing case management. Um, and so in their home at the, at the beginning, as soon as they first um, move into housing, because that's a really sort of fragile time. Um, so working with them in their home to make sure they have what they need, um, you know, furniture and clothing, that they understand um, their new community, that they have the bus routes, um, things like that. And then long-term, that might just be a phone call here or there, kind of touching base and seeing how they're doing. So really tailoring that response to allow households to recognize that they're not alone, that there is a resource out there that we really want them to be successful over the long term, but that that success is really measured by or really sort of outlined by them and their own goals and that we're here to support them in that. People can find you at Miriam's, with an S, miriamshouseprogram.org. Um, give us some of the, the statistics. Um, 
your your cost per client served has gone down dramatically over the years. Your success rate of people that stay homeless, I mean, stay in a home but don't go back to homeless. Just give give us some of those numbers because those are those are incredible, incredible impact that you've having on people's lives. Yeah. So pre recession back in two thousand and eight, we were serving a household or sorry, a homeless person at a cost of about $16,000 per person. Um, and now um, that's almost down to 2000. And so that's really because we um, tailor the response appropriately. And so, um, so certainly more expensive responses, longer term supports are still there, but for those who have high barriers to housing, who have had long episodes of homelessness, and then for those who really need a soft touch, that's what we provide, which means that we have more funds available to serve more households. And so our growth and the fact that we expanded um, so significantly is not because our budget has increased tremendously. It's because we're being a lot smarter with the resources that we have, recognizing um, that not every household needs an intensive resource. Love it, love it. So um, I'm, Russ is gonna have some good questions. He's taking this in. Um, but I'm going to ask you, I want to move us. We've established how successful Miriam's house is in the work that you're doing in, in the city in Virginia that has the highest poverty rate in the whole Commonwealth. Mm-hmm. It's like 24 and a half percent here in, in Lynchburg. And so the work you're doing is, is one of many charities that are, that are reaching out to help people uh, regain their lives and empower them for a better future. So I was so impressed with uh, your report, how you gave it and the work you're doing. And uh, you're, you're just sort of do it. You don't take a horn or anything. You just do it. I, I, was, I was quite impressed. Um, you have a, um, a degree in social work. That's right. And you're leading an organization. So those are two different skill sets. So when you first came to work, you were the social worker, I'm guessing. Now, you, that's still a, skill, still a skill set you have. However, putting on the mantle of the leader is a very different skill set. So talk about that journey a little bit. How did you equip yourself for this leadership position that you're in? Yeah, I think the great thing about social work as um, a discipline is that there's um, an understanding of sort of a micro track, which is really clinical in nature and talking about more working directly with service um, with individuals. There's also a macro track, which is really great. And so uh, I think many individuals like yourself really think of social work, more of that micro sort of uh, one-on-one individual track. But actually there's this really great macro track that talks about and educates on um, organizational change and system change and advocacy and um, capacity building for, for different systems or models of care or um, sort of um, community um, wealth building or community changing. And so I think the great thing about social work is that there's sort of those, those um, both of those aspects are really part of the, the education. And so I had some really great um, experience or some great education in that macro piece, which is really about, um, you know, making significant impacts. And then also even just things, you know, such as, um, you know, data, of course, has become so much more important in sort of the social work realm and social services organizations and human service organizations to measure outcomes, right? And so I think, um, you know, back in the day, it was sort of like, I'm going to do this intervention because it feels right to me. I like it. It seems like a good approach. Um, And now that's really sort of flipped to, you know, what does the data show? Is this effective? Is this working? Um, what are your actual outcomes? And so I think that's really been appealing to me in that I was able to work individually with people and see um, sort of a, an individual sort of outcome, right? So someone who was no longer sleeping on the street was able to have an apartment, was able to keep a job. Um, and that's really cool. But now in a leadership position, I'm able to see how that translates into a big picture, right? And so now I can see how we have um, you know, a 63% reduction in family homelessness in our community over the course of a year. And that's incredible. And so even though that, that results in individual families that I may not, I may no longer know, you know, I know that that makes a significant difference. And so I think going from a direct service uh, position to more of a leadership position, I'm able to really bring those experiences and those personal sort of experiences into that leadership to know that, 
the work that we do to improve big picture um, sort of design and, and implementation means that more and more families and more and more homeless households are being impacted. And so I still have those images of, the, of those individuals and those families in my head, even though I no longer am working directly with them in their home or in a shelter. That's really an effective model. You know how it works because you worked there. Now, supervising that and empowering that, you've got firsthand knowledge of, of that, that space. That's really good. What were your challenges in coming up to speed as letting go of doing and, and empowering others to do? What were your challenges personally growing into that? Yeah, I think there's, um, you know, there's a piece of having to let go of some of that, right, of that sort of um, firsthand experience or that interaction with, with clients, you know, and, and there's a part of having to really trust the people that are now in those positions to continue that great work. Um, and so that's, yeah, that involves, you know, not only are we an organization dedicated to empowering our clients, but we really want to be dedicated to empowering our employees. And so a lot of that means that we, um, or that I trust them to do the work that they're, that they have set out to do. And so, um, supporting them, training them, but ultimately believing that they're going to continue that mission of ending homelessness and, and really kind of the framework that we've created here at Miriam's house, which is one of empowerment and um, really support for our clients. That's awesome. I'm going to um, <clears throat> shut up for a minute, let my co-host, um, he's over there thinking, he's been listening to you, and he comes from a position of having been a, uh, inside a nonprofit doing funds development, and, uh, and he now supports nonprofit leaders all over the place, like I do. So Russell, what are you hearing, and do you have some, uh, some questions for our guests today? Well, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for coming in and, and sharing your experience with us. It's very critical to get people in a stable place because then you can start to solve all of the other problems that they have. Mm -hmm. So the formula that you're working by is perfect for what needs to be done. And you know, homelessness is a tough issue. We've got, uh, I have found myself uh, in the coalition, I'm in several coalitions that actually focus on homelessness here. And our big challenge is affordable housing. Mm -hmm. But to get back to the work that you're doing, having been on the ground, effective leaders and transformational leaders, as Hugh defines them, are people that know all of their audiences. And that includes the people they serve. Mm -hmm. Transformational leaders build good leaders around them. So when everybody understands how what they do fits into the big picture and they see those results, they get a, a broader understanding of what they're doing and it, it works better. And, uh, you know, just looking at, at the work you do and how you approach serving people and uh, the, the people that you partner with, the collaboration mm -hmm. piece is something you didn't address that I love about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. because it's an all-hands-on-deck type of thing when you're dealing with something like homelessness. It's mm -hmm. not the dirty old guy in the raincoat we're talking about. We're talking about yeah. families. We're talking yeah. about families here. So uh, it's very important to do that. And I know that homelessness, as it's measured all over the place, I think greatly understates what's there. You know. Mm -hmm. So the thing about what you're doing is that you are doing it right. You know, you're not probably not serving as many people. Nonprofit leaders, by and large, none of them has enough money. None of them serve enough people for where they want to see people go in the community, uh, go in the direction they want it to go in. But it's the effectiveness and the efficiency that you serve the people that you have. There's real stories. There's stories behind the numbers that jump mm -hmm. out so that people see that impact. So that's remarkable. I commend you for that. And it's great. That's being able to make that shift from social worker to leader of the organization. That's difficult because mm -hmm. a lot of people that are in that field uh, have a lot of difficulty talking about value that they bring. Um, and it is. It's about value. You're, you're working in partnerships to transition people from where they are. So, And thinking about this, uh, when you were asked to be the leader of this organization, what, what are the things you were doing 
and I know they probably told you this since they interviewed you, the board, what were the things that you were doing that they thought made you right to take leadership of the organization? Yeah, I think really taking the mission of the organization, which of course is to end homelessness, and then expanding it beyond what the organization had always done. And so I think as sort of leading the programs and making recommendations for um, new ways to still fulfill that mission of ending homelessness, but not being so tied to a certain program type in order to do that, I think the board recognized that especially after post, you know, sort of recession when nonprofits had had either the same resources or less resources, um, they realized that, you know, that that was really something that they wanted to embrace, which was exciting to me. You know, I think that um, nobody wants to be the leader of an organization that is stagnant and stays the same and is interested in being um, adapted and growing and um, and so, you know, I think um, that was mutually exciting for the board and for myself to recognize that, you know, we wanted to take Miriam's house um, in, a, in a different way or in a better way, but still further that mission of ending homelessness and not leave that behind. So. And that's it. It's kind of keeping your eye on the prize. And, yeah. You know, a, a lot of times that involves having what I call some tough conversations in the boardroom. Yeah. And... Think of a time when you had a really tough conversation in the boardroom that really kicked you up to a new level. You know, are there some points where you had to have some tough conversations about the approach or about a specific program that was difficult? But once you had that conversation and navigated through that, it took you to another level. Yeah, you know, I think um, back in the 90s when Miriam's House was formed, we, we served homeless families, but we defined those homeless families as single moms with children. And, you know, what we've done over the last several years is I've had to um, talk with the board about changing that family definition to include any household with children under the age of 18, whether that's a grandma raising a grandchild who'd become homeless, a single dad raising his two children and they've become homeless, two moms with their children. And so, you know, I think that that, um, that that is, was tough. You know, I think a lot of individuals were really tied to the fact that Miriam's house supported um, single moms who were homeless and having to educate them that families sometimes look different and that as an organization, we don't want any child to be homeless regardless of their family composition. And so changing that definition of family to include any household with children, I think was a really big step for our board and for our organization because now it allows us to serve every homeless family in our community as opposed to really kind of being um, narrow in our definition. You know, one of the things that I've discovered in in joining these coalitions here in Colorado and mm-hmm. Denver metro area, there's a segment in the population that they have coined as housing unstable. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are people who are working full time are not necessarily eligible for services. Some are on the verge of maybe a paycheck away from homelessness. Others are actually couch surfing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't they're working full time or a combination of jobs to, to constitute full time. They still don't have enough resources to provide mm-hmm. themselves with stable housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have a segment of kids who are in high school who are homeless. They mm-hmm. couch surf, they come to school. Are you finding that you have a lot of those populations in Lynchburg? And if, if there are a significant number of them, what are some of the steps that you've taken at Miriam's house to help them? Yeah, so we've actually, as a community, have just noticed a growing trend, um, of, uh, an increase in youth homelessness. And so that's sort of what you mentioned. And that's that unaccompanied 18 to age 24. Many of them have aged out of foster care or some sort of institution setting. Um, and then don't have that family support to sort of make that next step into adulthood. And so, so that is actually um, next month, which is just in a few days, we're going to be expanding one of our programs, Community First, which is a rapid rehousing program for families 
Um, and we're going to also be serving unaccompanied youth with that program. And so that's exactly sort of what, what happened is we noticed that trend. There's that growing population. There's not an organization here in Lynchburg that targets homeless youth. Um, and so we're going to become that, which I think is really exciting. It's a really vulnerable population um, with some different challenges in the, the homeless families that we're serving, um, but, but certainly very real needs. And so, yeah, we're really excited to be serving that population um, just starting in a few days. Awesome. That's wonderful that you yeah. come up with resources and have the vision to do that. Yeah. Yep. We're, we're experiencing a lot of trouble. Our real estate market here in the Denver metro area and throughout Colorado is red hot. The price is very high. Yeah. Uh, we just had the very last homeless shelter that was in Jefferson County closed down about two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. There are now no homeless shelters in Jefferson County, which has about 655,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, the shelter model is what we kind of leaned on before, but it doesn't really lend itself to long-term solutions because mm-hmm. when people, it's, it's, it's uh, basic Maslow. When people are worried about how to keep dry and mm-hmm. eat, uh, they can't be concerned with higher pursuits. So uh, what what is your feeling about uh, affordable housing there in Lynchburg and how are you incorporating that into your approach? Uh, do you think that the shelter model is dead? Yeah, well, that's kind of two different things. So I think kind of what you're mentioning is that housing first approach or housing first model, which I think um, really kind of stemmed in the last 10 years from the recession and recognizing that we don't have enough shelters or enough facilities to address homelessness. And in fact, those facilities often had poor outcomes. Um, There was a lot of sort of revolving door and people not necessarily um, um, ending their homelessness through going to a shelter, but just sort of prolonging. And so, you know, I think that there is a place for a brief, short-term shelter, a crisis-oriented shelter that is just um, short-term. I've, I've lost my housing. I need to go somewhere for a couple of days. But then what we do here in Lynchburg and what many communities around the country are doing is then quickly working with that household to find housing, whether that's affordable housing in the community, subsidized housing, or assistance through rapid rehousing or permanent supportive housing. And so I think there certainly is a place for shelter, but I don't think that place is a 30, 60, 90 day stay without an intervention. And so I think that um, what our community does is that we've set benchmarks and said after two days of entering a homeless shelter, a case manager needs to be meeting with that household, working on a housing plan, figuring out are they going to need additional resources or do they just need a little bit of support to get back into housing? And so that kind of goes into your next point about affordable housing, because if we want to get people out of shelter quickly, the way to do that is by having an affordable housing stock, um, because many of these individuals, of course, are still going to be poor. They're, um, they're either already working, but working a low-wage job, or that we're helping them get employment, but that employment is probably not going to be, you know, the median income for um, our community or for any community. And so, you know, I think um, affordable housing continues to be a problem for our community and for many others, not just um, the, the quantity of affordable housing, but really it goes into the quality of affordable housing. And so one of the biggest issues for our community is the, the um, sort of condensed um, right? Sort of those, those condensed areas of affordable housing. And so when you, when you have that, when you have affordable housing only located in low income neighborhoods, that doesn't provide opportunities for households to, to get out of poverty and to really better themselves. And so I think, so as a community, I'm part of a housing collaborative working to increase affordable housing, not just the quantity, but also the location of that affordable housing, recognizing that having affordable housing in mixed income um, neighborhoods is going to provide a lot more opportunity for those formerly homeless households than if they were um, going to be um, go right from shelter back into a really poor neighborhood. Yeah, you've got that right. You know, there are all sorts of ancillary issues like access to transportation. And of yep. course, our, our, uh, our transit district is investing very heavily in light rail. 
And mm -hmm. I'm a light rail rider, but it's not for my livelihood. It's, it's for my convenience. Mm -hmm. And so the people in the, in the poor neighborhoods don't have good access to that light rail. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you talk about condensing people in the, in the affordable project, uh, there's been a number of them built in different areas of the city where people that came in and we had men and women from the Second Chance Center who are people who experienced incarceration trying to recreate their lives. They secured funds to build something. And so there was a big community meeting, not in my neighborhood. Yeah. Not in my neighborhood. So one of the things that Close to Home is doing is, is actually reaching out to people to talk about homelessness and what it looks like because there's the old guy with the with the uh, bottle of wine and the paper bag type of image who's just a wino uh, laying under a bridge that's the image a lot of people have about homelessness but a lot of homeless people yeah. look like you and i yeah. and you would never know in a thousand years that you're homeless and uh, trying to talk with people about that. Talk a little bit about some of the ways that you folks have tried to explain uh, what homelessness is and educate the community in order to get more support for what you're doing. Yeah, I think a lot of that is creating that empathy, kind of like what you said. It's allowing um, individuals who don't interact with people experiencing homelessness, allow them to understand um, some stories or some faces. We did a um, a photographic exhibit several years ago, Faces of Homelessness. And it was very simple. It was merely showing the faces of the men, women, and children in our community who experience homelessness. And many of them were not the faces that community members expected, right? Because you're right. It's not the, you know, grisly old man who's, you know, been on the streets for 30 years. Certainly there are a handful of individuals that are like that. But by and large, it's the five-year-old, you know, kid whose mom was a victim of domestic violence and they had to flee their home. Or it was the 50-year-old woman who's worked a low-wage job her entire life and was laid off because the company moved and so it so became homeless. And so, you know, I think um, creating that empathy through photos and through stories is really important. It's an important piece of what we do. We have a, um, a large community luncheon every year with almost 500 um, attendees and having a client speaker at that is always the most popular um, part of the event, better than even the raffles, you know, because I think being able to, to see someone face to face who've experienced homelessness, realize they are just like you and I, but they, they had a, a crisis occur, whether that crisis was a house fire or a domestic violence incident or the loss of a job, whatever that crisis was, that crisis hit, they did not have the resources to sustain that, um, and they became homeless. And I think recognizing that it's not, um, it's not always as easy as saying it's someone's fault, that they drank too much or they were too lazy to go to work, understanding that that's not what causes homelessness, that you know, crises can occur to any household. Um, and if a household doesn't have the resources to weather that storm, then they're going to become homeless. And so I think having those different events and having those different opportunities to share that story really creates that empathy. And the incredible thing is that the Lynchburg community here is so supportive of the work that we do. I mean, really our expansion and being able to add new populations and being able to continue our work is because I think that they have that empathy and they understand that this is um, – um, their community, and they do not want people sleeping outdoors or, or on park benches. That really is um, inhumane. I'm just going to weigh in since you both mentioned a stereotypical old guy. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Wonder where that comes from. I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> but um, um, you mentioned, Sarah, this is quite remarkable. I I'm just realizing that I don't see a whole lot of people on park benches walking the streets in Lynchburg. And, you know, some cities, it's just very much in your face. Um, you mentioned there were nine programs that did similar work. Talk about collaborations that, you know, how do you work in conjunction with any other, any kind of disciplines, any other agencies that are working with uh, this demographic? Yeah, we have a great community collaboration among homeless response providers. And so not only just those direct service providers are 
homeless prevention, our homeless diversion, shelters, DV shelters, um, organizations like us that do kind of those next step services. So we have all of those at the table, but we also have all of our sort of auxiliary services at the table. And so our social services, our uh, mental health providers, our recovery providers, um, probation and parole, our police officers, our school systems. And so we've recognized that we really need everyone at the table sort of informing policy, informing decisions. Um, and so the great thing is that having all those different voices allows us to make sure there's not gaps in services. It allows us to make sure you know, that we are serving every population. And so, you know, we have um, providers that are working specifically with veterans experiencing homelessness. And, you know, we really target families experiencing homelessness. Now we're going to be the youth provider working with homelessness. We have other organizations that work with um, individuals who have been chronically homeless. And so I think recognizing that not one organization needs to do that all, that instead we need to really build upon, you know, which organization is really great at this work and let's support them at that instead of duplicating or trying to compete. And so that's really what we do as a, as a homeless response system. We recognize, you know, what are the gaps? What are we doing really well? And then also sometimes recognizing, you know what, what, what do we no longer need? And maybe we no longer need, um, you know, this many shelter beds because we're doing a really good job at diverting or preventing people from becoming homeless. So let's instead dedicate more resources um, to that. So that way we can do a better job of preventing homelessness rather than just treating it. And so, you know, I think those conversations can really happen when you have everyone at the table. And so that's been really neat. Preventing. Go ahead, Russell. Oh, uh, prevention, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. Next time you're out here, we can do a tour. I can show you where a lot of homeless people are and they're starting to appear in the burbs mm. away from Denver. Uh, mm. They're everywhere. And mm. so those, those conversations or those collaborations are, are magic because everybody works to their wheelhouse and, mm. but there, there's always more. So in looking at the measures that you're thinking about as far as prevention, if there were, was one thing that as a group these agencies could do that would be the most important thing for them to do as far as prevention? What would that one action be that you have to take? It would be to create more affordable housing. Yep, exactly. I think we kind of talked about it earlier. That's really that piece, not only in preventing homelessness on the front end, um, but also in ending homelessness when someone becomes homeless. And so, you know, by and large, no one wants to become homeless. And so that's by and large, people are becoming homeless because they don't have affordable housing. And so if somebody is already paying more than 50% of their income towards rent and they lose that job, there's no way they have the savings account available to pay that next month's rent when they already were paying more than their means. And so having more affordable housing really would be the key in um, preventing many incidences of homelessness. Wow, that sounds either like like-mindedness or group psychosis. That's <laughs> what a lot of people are thinking in these parts. And we've got a real challenge with affordable housing because there's development going on everywhere. There's people making tons of money. And uh, there are there are moves being made by various city governments to clear away some areas to do some rezoning yeah. to allow for mixed use commercial uh, and the uh, you know the affordable housing with the land prices and the housing prices. Mm -hmm. It's a real challenge for us here. I, I hope it's not as much uh, one there as it is here, but you know. The bigger the challenge, the, the, the bigger the, the mission. And so, you know, people are willing to cooperate. I just found out about, I'm learning about agencies I didn't even know about. So there's a spirit of collaboration. A lot of people are looking at this. This is huge. So there are people from both sides of town and all areas of town that are starting to look at this and say, oh, we're in over our heads. So there's a lot more willingness to collaborate. I guess that's what Henry Kissinger meant when he said the absence of alternatives kind of clears the mind marvelous. Mm -hmm. Yep, sure. So Sarah, going forward, um, 
I'm sure as a leader, you have a vision for what this organization should look like in five years. And have you developed that in conjunction or a, a process to think about that with your board? Yeah, I think, you know, we do some great strategic thinking every couple of years, every few years, three years with our board to kind of sort to lay, sort of lay that vision to say, you know, where have we come? Where are we going? Um, and so I think that's really happened. So our growth has not just happened by accident, right? It has been strategic. It's been saying, you know, what do we do really well? Um, first, that was family homelessness. And so we grew that program until we now can serve every family um, experience in homelessness. And so then it's recognizing, well, what's next? Okay, there's this youth homeless population that's not being served. So now we're going to grow that program. Um, and so I think that will really continue. It's really recognizing the dynamic changes of homelessness and what it is that we can do to make a difference. And so if that, you know, if in five years from now, all of a sudden we see a spike in a different population experiencing homelessness, then we're going to um, address that population. And so I think remaining true to our mission of ending homelessness, but recognizing that might look different as circumstances change, as our community shifts or changes or um, different populations become homeless or there's new interventions. And so I think the biggest thing for me is to remain um, flexible. Um, and so that recognizing that in all that we do, we need to be working to end homelessness, but that's going to look different and we're going to be serving different people um, five years from now than, than who we're serving right now. Um, just as a side note, Center Vision gives away 10, 10 um, visioning or board evaluation sessions a year for local nonprofits. And we could uh, extend that to Denver if you wanted to, Russ. So we meet, meet with boards. Sometimes it's really helpful to have somebody that's not inside to help, help boards think uh, about what possibilities are. And then and you can come backwards and think about how to get there. Um, if you have a vision for the future, what are the biggest challenges in going forward with all the things going on in our world today? What's the biggest challenges that, that Miriam's house faces to achieve those goals? Yeah, I think there's a lot of sort of um, inability to predict things like federal and state funding for homeless response is always a concern. A portion of our funding, of course, is through federal homeless response grants and state homeless response grants. And that's for many of our partners across the country. And so the um, unpredictability of that funding, of course, is a concern. And then, of course, just continued funding for things like subsidized housing or affordable housing development. I mean, I think that's going to be um, huge in the next, um, you know, several years, seeing sort of the direction of HUD and the department, you know, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, and what direction that goes in um, in creating more affordable housing in communities. And so, you know, those sort of big um, policy um, decisions are are difficult to predict, and they really shape how communities address homelessness. In in your seat of leader. Um, how do you continue to work on yourself, your skills, your abilities to grow this organization? I think really taking advantage of um, others in similar roles across the state and across the country and forming those um, connections and those um, sort of collaborations. And so, you know, even um, just having open conversations with them about challenges that they're experiencing, things they've done to overcome. You know, I'm certainly not one to recreate the wheel. And so I think when we've added a new program or we've served a different population, um, I've really reached out to others that are doing good work um, and, and asked for help and asked for input and advice. And that's really um, served me well. And it allows, you know, me to really not have to sort of recreate the wheel or, or sort of uh, learn from mistakes, but rather to really um, hone in on what, what has worked for others. And so I think that's really been um, and will continue to be really helpful tool. We're coming to the last minutes of our interview. We try not to go over an hour, uh, even though we really get intrigued with the good work of our people that we interview. And um, this, this is, um, I think many people are going to find this inspiring that um, uh, hearing your story, uh, some people learn by tactical, how to do this, how to do that. Other people learn from stories. Some people learn from both. So this has been a, a really good sharing time to inspire people. Um, I want to ask a question, then I'm going to do a sponsor promotion and then um, come back to you for a final thought as we close out the interview. 
um, about what, what would you share with other people that you think they ought to know about leadership and building an organization? What's a challenge or a tip or uh, a charge for people uh, that, that are listening to this podcast? But um, you talk about the groups that you get together with in like the veterans, homeless, the, the, the groups that have something in common. Do you also work with groups that, that aren't doing the same thing? Like, do you work with Food for Families or some of those other charities that, that work with these people in different ways? And then if, if so, how do, you, how do you build these collaborations? Yeah, so Miriam's House, we're not only a direct service provider, but we're also the lead agency for homeless response in Central Virginia. And so part of that role is, yeah, exactly, building those connections and building those collaborations um, and recognizing that we need everyone at the table, not just the homeless response providers, but all of those other organizations um, and entities. And so, um, you know, that's, that's people like landlords, you know, who may have housing um, that we can advocate to become more affordable or we can advocate for those landlords to offer um, housing to individuals with barriers like maybe a, a previous eviction. And so that collaboration, I think, um, is, is one-on-one. And so meeting with individuals and entities and encouraging them to be part of the solution to homelessness. And it's also can be sort of a larger, you know, I think when there's a recognition of good work being done, people want to join that. And so I think that over the last several years, the homeless response system of which Miriam's house is a, is a part of has received some great recognition that we're, we're making some good progress. We've done some good work. Um, and so people, organizations, businesses want to be a part of that. And it takes good leadership. Um, I'm sure because of your demeanor and your willingness to talk and share that you attract similar kind of people to you who would want to do that, that kind of work. You're not in this protective it's my secret kind of operations. You're doing something that's uh, going to attract like-minded people. Um, that does, that's, we can't say that for every segment of charities in any community, not even Lynchburg, because there, there are some, some segments that aren't collaborating. Um, we're headed toward opening a center at University of Lynchburg. Center Vision is a partner in that, that project, um, along with C-Vane, um, Central Virginia uh, something for excellence and nonprofit. We're, we're, we're going to build a center and it's, it's also, it's partly um, helping equip leaders with, with, with uh, skills for board and funding and whatnot, but it's also a place to come and broaden the scope of collaborations. So I'm thinking you ought to be in the front end of that conversation to, to help us think about how that would work because there are a lot of um, charities that don't have this level of, of synergy that we want to help bring together and also have a listing for, for everybody of who does what. There's, there's not really a global listing, a resource that's up to date so that any agency knows how to refer people. So just giving you a heads up, we'd love to have you in that conversation sometime soon. Great. I'd love to be part of that. So we are able to do magazines, to do our podcast, to do our online community for community builders, center vision, leadership model because we have uh, sponsors that help us help us do that, pave the way so we can show up and do the work. A sponsor for this, this podcast is Word Sprint. Word Sprint ha- teaches you how to stay in touch with your donor base. And it's 30% message, 30% the, who you talk to, and 30% the rhythm of the message. 10% is the appearance. So Bill Gilmer and his team at Word Sprint, wordsprint.com, know how to construct these programs so your donors know what their money's being used for and they continue being donors, increase their donation, and encourage others to do the same. So WordSprint is an invaluable resource for any nonprofit or any service agency that really wants to support this very important track of revenue. You spoke about grants, Sarah, but I bet donors are a significant part of your funding as well and it could be even more. That's true. That's right. Yep. I think that's one thing that a lot of organizations have um, really increased their um, efforts to because we don't have a lot of control over state and federal grants, but we can certainly um, build relationships with our community um, donors. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So this has been very helpful, very informative, and I appreciate your time today. 
as we leave this session, what thought or, or challenge would you like to share with other leaders out there who haven't quite gotten to the place that you've done? Or have gotten to a good place and want to make sure they stay current with their skills? Yeah, you know, I think it's um, staying connected to the history of an organization and staying connected to um, sort of the mission and, and the, the beauty that happened before, but also not being so tied to that history. Um, that there's an unwillingness to change and to grow. And so I think that um, what's been really great about my experience at Miriam's house has been that ability to honor the past while also really looking forward to the future and um, in honoring that past by changing for the future. Russell, you want to give us a wrap as we're leaving here? Wrap up? Well, thank you very much for taking time to talk with us here about a very, very important matter. And it's really about partnerships. And I think the private sector becomes a bigger part of that as we go along. Because when you're talking about land and real estate, you're talking about real money and profits. So it's important to get those people who resonate with your message on board to understand that this is impacting people they may know. So thank you for the brilliant work you're doing. I'd love to talk to you again a little bit about a book I'm working on, Profiling uh, High Performance Nonprofits, because I think you'd fit there. And uh, thank all of our friends on Facebook everywhere here on Zoom for watching. Of course, Sandy's probably gonna want you to submit something for the Nonprofit Performance 360 magazine. And we'd love an article on this, especially, not many people know much about homelessness. So it's really important that they get a chance to, to learn a little bit about that. And thank you to Sandy, who always keeps us on track. Uh, we love it, and, and Sandy's definitely uh, looking forward to having an article. She'll get all of that information to you on how to submit and what we look for. And I look very forward to seeing you soon. And uh, as always, you know, you and I have a lot of fun. And, you know, this is the fun part of the job is, is meeting people like you and finding out what kind of stuff you're doing. And it helps us recharge our batteries because we are in the transformation business. This is about people. It's about transforming lives. And so there's a bigger picture here. We need a lot of enlightened leaders like you to bring it to life for other people and to help us move on and create that legacy so that no one's left behind. Thank you, Russell. Not bad for a ball guy, huh? That's not bad for a ball guy. Thank you, Russell. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.